No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So you can call into the show at 627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. 6008, or you can Skype us questions. Uh, tonight, we have a great guest. I'm so excited to have her. Unfortunately, uh, Marilia is on extended leave right now, so it's just me, and I hope I won't bore our guests. But tonight, uh, our guest is Dahlia Lithwick, who uh, is uh, a graduate of Yale Uh, with a bachelor's degree in English and and a law degree from Stanford, pretty good credentials. She teaches uh, lectures at UVA Law School. Uh, She's a senior editor of Slate. Uh, She has got an award-winning podcast, which she, I'm sure, will tell you about uh, when she's on the show. And we're just so excited to have her uh, tonight. Thanks so much for being with us, Ms. Lithwick. Oh, thank you, Senator. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a treat. So let's start right at the beginning, because when I was in college, they taught me that the Supreme Court is not political, that the court system is is impartial, you know, the whole idea of blind justice, they're, they're, they're not a political body uh, like Congress and, and, and the executive branch. Uh, but uh, I guess we found out recently that that's just not true, or maybe we've known it for a long time, but certainly not true. Is that, that they're, they're very political. Is that not right? I, I think that what you were taught and what I was taught and what children in civics classes around, you know, not just the country, but the world are taught is that that is an aspiration, right? That the court is constructed in a way that, you know, the justices have lifetime tenure. It's almost impossible to remove them. Uh, you know, the bar for impeachment is high crimes and misdemeanor. We saw what that took with Donald Trump. And in exchange for that unbelievable amount of power, Um, they make a deal with the American people that they will conduct themselves in a nonpartisan ethical fashion, right? And that was supposed to be the promise. And sometimes, I mean, the way I like to think about it is if you look at the ethics rules, and we can talk later about why there's no ethics rules that are binding on the Supreme Court, but if you look at the ethics rules that other federal judges have to follow, 
The ethics rules are about preserving the appearance of of propriety, about preventing the appearance of being in the tank for one side or another. And those rules are about kind of a hope and an aspiration that you want every single litigant in America to believe that when they come in front of this body, they will be given a fair shake. And I guess my short answer is, We are all now learning that that is an aspiration. It is a promise that the court has made to us, and it's not true, and that the court can, just as other, uh, you know, we've seen the court do in other times, for instance, Bush v. Gore, for instance, you know, the long, long history of the Lochner era, the, the era when the court participated in setting aside civil rights. The court has always been political, and we have always been sold kind of a commercial that they would not be political, and at their best, they have done better, and we are seeing them at their very, very worst. Well, let's talk about, given that, let's talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room. I want to tell you that every woman... I know every woman in my family is upset, my wife, my daughters, about the recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And let's be clear, that doesn't ban abortion, right? Under the Tenth Amendment, that which is not the province of the federal government becomes the province of the state. And that's basically what they've decided, right? That there is no protection under federal law uh, for the right to have an abortion. Is, it, is that a correct uh, uh, interpretation of their decision? That's exactly correct. The, the decision throws it back to the states and says in the states that want to just have bans, you can have bans. And in the states that want to criminalize it, which we're seeing happen in some jurisdictions, you can go ahead and criminalize it. So very much, you know, the way to think about it is that the before the Supreme Court, for instance, legalized same-sex marriage in Obergefell, uh, there were some states that had, uh, you know, same-sex marriage, and there were some states that did not. And if you resided in a state that did not, you did not have the federal constitution to avail yourself of that protection. So yeah, what essentially you're going to see happen is a patchwork of, you know, blue states and red states. And in blue states, not only will you be able to have an abortion, but you will be able to get a medication abortion. You know, you can get the morning after pill, you can do get all sorts of things. And in red states, you're going to see, you know, up to and including criminalization uh, not just of people seeking abortions, but of providers, of people like what we saw in Texas with SB8, uh, who aid and abet somebody. Uh, so we're going to be in a really, I think, very, very scary Mad Max climate for a next foreseeable future where states are going to try to not just ban abortion, but to preclude women who reside in that state from crossing state lines into a state where it's lawful. Uh, They're going to try to go after providers in other states who give abortions to women domiciled in a state that uh, bans it. And we're going to see efforts, believe it or not, to criminalize getting abortion medication in the mail uh, if you're a state that bans it. So in some jurisdictions, in, you know, California and New York, it's going to be easier than ever to terminate a pregnancy, and we're already seeing that in 
Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas. It is all but impossible, and it's going to get more and more difficult. And as I suggested, in some jurisdictions, uh, it will be a crime. Well, you know, we're paralyzed about that. We're, we're apoplectic about this in the District of Columbia because, as you probably know, Congress can make any law it cares to make in the District of Columbia. So we, you know, we've already got last week we had our representative in the House of Representatives, Eleanor Holmes Norton, on the show, and we're already preparing to, you know, see what we can do, because we assume that if the Congress becomes, the House of Representatives becomes Republican in uh, um, in November, that they will certainly try to interfere with uh, the laws in the District of Columbia, which are actually quite liberal uh, when it comes to abortion. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're really upset about that. Can I ask you, why was this... Uh, original case of Roe v. Wade, why was that that tried under the the right to privacy? Uh, Why not the 14th Amendment, equal protection? Or was it a mistake to to try the case uh, on the basis of right to privacy? So that's a, a really excellent question. And it's definitely, I think, one of these cases where you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And we can now say, and by the way, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg very famously said exactly what you just said, that Roe was planted in the sort of dusty soil of the privacy protections, the substantive due process protections of the 14th Amendment, instead of the Equal Protection Clause, where there might have been a more robust defense. And famously, uh, Justice Ginsburg said if we had brought this as an equal protection case, uh, maybe it would have been easier uh, uh, to defend it over the years and it would have been harder for the court to overturn it. And I think that there's, and by the way, Justice Alito very, very um, puckishly, ha ha ha, cites Justice uh, Ginsburg's own critique of Roe in his majority opinion in Dobbs as if to sort of say, you know, even she, the great, uh, liberal lioness uh, knew this case was wrongly decided. I think the reason that I say that history, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, is that if you actually look at the landscape in 1973, when Justice Harry Blackmun authored Roe v. Wade, we now have actually really good information from former clerks on the court, people who helped participate in that decision, that the equal protection rights that were being afforded women at that time were not robust enough to hang Roe onto. And that certainly it is the case that most of the justices who had the opportunity in the early 1970s to say, we're going to do this as an equal protection case, we're going to give women heightened protection under the Equal Protection Clause actually thought the ERA was about to pass, and they were so convinced that the ERA was about to pass and that women would have a kind of constitutionally codified right to equality that they thought it would be inappropriate for the court to kind of get out over their skis and do it for them. And so there's a lot, a lot of reporting that we now have that the court thought about doing this as an equality case, rejected it, A, because the doctrine wasn't there yet, 
And B, because, and this is important, and this is the thing I've been trying to say in the last few weeks, that we forget that the privacy right, that unenumerated rights protected through the substantive due process clause, even though Justice Alito bats it away as though it's made out of like feathers and, you know, cotton candy, and even though John Cornyn at the Katanji Brown Jackson hearing implied that those rights have, they're just ephemeral, they're meaningless, it's entirely judge made, invented law. There's actually a really serious reason that we have a right to family autonomy and privacy that is protected in those privacy clauses, in the substantive due process clauses of the 14th Amendment. And that is quite simply because the drafters of the 13th and 14th Amendment who were dealing with newly freed slaves were trying to give robust protection to slaves in ways that were not already codified in the Bill of Rights. And that meant that if you were a former slave, your wife could be raped, your children could be removed from the home, you and your uh, spouse that were lawfully married could be separated, your children could be sold as chattel. All of those things, when the abolitionists drafted the 13th and 14th Amendment, were so anathema to freedom that the substantive due process protections, those privacy family autonomy protections, were drafted so that no one could ever tell anyone, again, a freed person, that their children didn't belong to them, that their wife was property or chattel, uh, that they couldn't have a family that they wanted. And if you trace the history following ratification of the 13th and 14th Amendment, time and time again, the court said there is a substantive due process privacy right, and it is the right to not be sterilized. It is the right for your children not to be educated in a region that you don't agree with. It is the right protected in Loving versus Virginia to marry someone of a different race. It is the right to use contraception in your marriage in Griswold versus Connecticut because you get to decide what your family looks like. And so I guess this is a very long kind of winded way of saying that the people who bat away the privacy interests in the 13th and 14th Amendment, as Justice Alito does, and makes it sound as though they're entirely fanciful, invented, not true, first of all, would have happily batted away an equal protection argument if this case came up on an equal protection claim. But much more urgently, they're ignoring the actual history, why the drafters of the 13th and 14th Amendment believed that the family unit was the most absolute fundamental cornerstone of democracy, and it deserved to be protected in the 13th and 14th Amendment, and it is protected in the 13th and 14th Amendment. You can ignore that history, as Justice Alito did, but it doesn't make it go away. And so are we to believe, given what you just said, as most people, many people are out there saying right now, that this opens the door to uh, get rid of all these other rights, the, the right to to uh, uh, same-sex marriage, for example. Uh, are these rights all uh, in jeopardy right now because of the, the, the ruling in, in, uh, uh, against Roe v. Wade? Is, is that, uh, does that open the door for all these other rights that you have a right to privacy for? I mean, I think that there's a formal answer and then there's a true answer. The formal answer is that Justice Alito 
is it pains in his opinion and Dobbs and the abortion decision to say that Roe is different from those other unenumerated rights? It's different from the right to contraception, he says, in Griswold. It's different from the right to uh, same-sex intimacy that the court preserved in Lawrence versus Texas. It's different from same-sex marriage, uh, as was the court preserved in Obergefell. And he says, as a formal matter, all of those other cases are different because it doesn't involve, you know, the death of, of uh, the taking of human life and that Roe is different and that those cases are not on the table. So that's the formal answer. And by the way, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, in his concurrence, makes the same claim. He says, we're just, this is only about Roe getting rid of, um, you know, this on the right to privacy and bodily autonomy doesn't affect those other cases. And then there's a really interesting concurrence by Justice Clarence Thomas, who essentially calls them out on their hypocrisy and says, if you're pulling out the puzzle piece that supports Roe v. Wade, you're pulling out the puzzle piece that supports all those other things. So let's put all those other things on the table. Let's agree that if there's no such thing as a fundamental right to privacy and bodily autonomy, then of course Griswold versus Connecticut should go. Of course Obergefell should go. Of course Lawrence should go. Uh, he's very clear. He names the cases and says uh, we should go for those two. So the reason I say that that's the truthful answer is I think this is yet again kind of Clarence Thomas saying the quiet part out loud, which is there's no meaningful distinction between all those other rights you described and Roe. And you are already seeing, by the way, uh, you know, in, in uh, Texas, you're seeing state officials say, of course, we're going for, for uh, gay marriage next. That's coming, absolutely. We're seeing states that are already making it impossible to get emergency contraception, right? That's protected by Griswold, the morning after pill and other um, things that they say, this is not contraception, this is an abortion. Uh, so already, it's not even a question of the court can differentiate them. We're all seeing emboldened states gunning for those rights and very confident that the same Supreme Court that said in June of 2022, oh, those other rights are not on the table, will very, very happily sweep away those rights in the future. And if you read Justice Alito's dissent in the gay marriage case in Obergefell, he's very clear that the logic he applies to do away with Roe was the logic he would have applied to do away with same-sex marriage. So I think you can certainly take them at their word that those cases are not in play, but I don't know why a court that just overturned 50 years of precedent with the stroke of a pen should be believed. Um, given that, um, it seems to me that, there, that, that there's an agenda out there that this court has, led by, by Justice Thomas, um, to um, bring forth these cases, and, and I think we all have a right to worry. But, um, but moving on, let me ask you about uh, Brent Kavanaugh. Uh, is there any grounds, you know, I know people are saying there's grounds for his removal because he sat there in front of the Senate and said that he would, that uh, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land and he would support that, and he hasn't. Is there anything, these guys are really 
they're not only uh, they may not be immune to politics, but they're certainly isolated from it. Are they not? Is it almost impossible to remove one of them? That's right. And that's why I said at the beginning that when they were given lifetime tenure, right, uh, and only impeachment as a uh, removal mechanism and only uh, for high crimes and misdemeanors, I mean, only a handful of judges have ever been removed from the federal bench uh, because it's, as you say, virtually impossible to remove them. And I don't think, and it wasn't just Kavanaugh, by the way, it was virtually every person in the majority in Dobbs at some point uh, took an oath and said at their confirmation hearings that, you know, depending on the formulation, that Roe v. Wade was settled precedent, that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, that they have no quarrel with Roe v. Wade, uh, that it was super, uh, was super precedent, super duper precedent, that no one was going to lay a glove on it. So you're quite right. I mean, I think in some sense, you know, this goes back to your original framing question, which is, wait, they lied. They all lied in their confirmation hearing as recently, you know, as a year and a half ago, Amy Coney Barrett uh, said in her confirmation mm-hmm. hearing that this was settled precedent of the court. And so I think, you know, removal to me is not uh, a viable option. I don't think these are impeachable offenses. I think there is a viable option, which is to add four seats to the court. Um, it's something that we talk about with like great trepidation and fear, and that we say this is absolutely not possible. It's never been done before. But it actually, again, this can be done without amending the Constitution, and the number of justices on the court has ebbed and flowed over the years. We know that we've had periods in history when there were five justices, six. Uh, Mitch McConnell held the court down to eight members for nearly a year after Justice Scalia died. So I think that rather than kind of try to do what seems to me almost an impossible lift of removing justices and claiming that they lied in their hearings, I think there is a, actually a really easy fit, fix, I'm sorry, which is expand the size of the court, uh, which we seem to refuse to take seriously as an option, even though there are bills currently pending that would do just that. And if we do that... Is that required since they have to be confirmed by the Senate? Is there a 60-vote uh, uh, requirement for that? Uh, do we need closure, or, or can a simple majority, uh, uh, you know, can a simple majority in the Senate uh, approve confirmation? Yeah, you I know? mean, we got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices when— um, Neil Gorsuch was confirmed. That was when uh, there's no longer a requirement for a 60-vote supermajority. And, you know, we've just seen a very, very contentious vote on Ketanji Brown-Jackson that was shockingly close, given how qualified she was. Um, So I think it can be done. I think the harder question is not a kind of constitutional or legal question, but a political will question. We know that President Biden, when he was um, on the campaign trail, had at least talked about major court reform, and he put together a commission, uh, as you know, to study the issue of major, major structural court reform, and that commission worked incredibly hard, a bunch of super brilliant blue panel (laughs) law professors and practitioners, 
Um, and, you know, they came up with a bunch of recommendations. And I think we have to look very, very seriously at their recommendations as a blueprint. I mean, expanding the court is one piece of it, but there's also, you know, jurisdiction stripping, saying that the court um, can't decide, you know, take away massive uh, constitutional rights without uh, supermajorities. There's a whole bunch of different fixes, including term limits, which is something that can be done. All of these things, I think we have to talk very, very, very seriously about putting them into effect and not sort of be afraid of these kind of purely political claims that this would be, you know, Armageddon and that we all, you know, FDR almost blew up his presidency over a court packing scheme. I think at minimum, the threat of packing the court, a very, very serious structural reform to the court might be the reason that the justices on the supermajority would be willing to pump the brakes because right now it feels to me as though, you know, they have the keys to the car and they're driving it off the cliff. They do not care about public opinion. They do not care that they have the lowest polling numbers in the history of polling. Nothing appears to have like constructed a breaking mechanism and they've taken a bunch of cases for next term that are equally, equally consequential. And so it seems to me that to refuse to use tools in our arsenal to say that the court must, must, must answer to someone is a decision to just kind of uh, disarm unilaterally and do nothing. Uh, well, let me just say that uh, after a few minutes of talking to you, if uh, the subject came up and I had a vote, you would certainly have my vote for confirmation if uh, if you were nominated. But let me ask you a couple of, of questions from my co-host, who unfortunately can't be here uh, tonight. She wants to know if you have any idea how many amicus briefs might have been uh, put forth in Dobbs, and and do they really do 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 those briefs really have an impact on what the the court decides? Um, well, so, so that's a great question, and the answer is I don't have the number at my fingertips. I guess we should explain to listeners that an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief, um, and it's a brief filed by any party that has any interest uh, in the case. Uh, can file these supplemental briefs, and they're over and above the briefs that the parties, right, the state of Mississippi filed a brief, uh, the Biden administration filed a brief, uh, the abortion clinic in this case through the Center for Constitutional Rights, they all filed briefs, and then there's hundreds, like dozens and dozens and dozens of briefs from all sorts of outside organizations uh, that were filed in this case. I don't have the exact number. I would commend to people, if you don't follow SCOTUS blog, the website, um, they have every single amicus brief linked to and listed in this case and every case. So that's scotusblog.com. But the answer to the complicated question of what are those briefs used for and how are they used is that in a lot of these cases, you will see arguments advanced in amicus briefs that telegraph where the court's going to go next. So for instance, um, Folks may remember that Amy Coney Barrett asked at oral argument when this case was argued in December, she asked a question of the attorneys who were uh, trying to do away with the Mississippi law. Why is there a burden on women to have to bear a pregnancy to term? Can't they just, you know, use a state 
safe harbor laws and effectively, you know, drop the baby off at a fire station. There's no burden, no harm, no foul. And a lot of folks were wondering, where did that question come from? That seemed like a very, very strange way to think about forcing a woman to, you know, give birth, which is many times more lethal and dangerous than terminating. Um, the answer is that was in an amicus brief. Uh, similarly, Justice Alito uh, noted that one of the reasons that we should think about doing away with abortion is because uh, we don't have a sufficient domestic supply of adoptable babies. That's also from an amicus brief. And lots and lots hmm. of the language that Justice Alito used that at least intimated that he was interested in fetal personhood, the notion that a fetus, as soon as an egg is fertilized, uh, has a soul and is a person and that it can be a crime to harm a, a, a fetus. That's also from amicus briefs filed in the case. So you had, and, and if there's a theme here, I guess we should just say it out loud. A lot of these are religious theological arguments. Um, there were a lot of religious groups that filed briefs in this case, uh, including one that made the claim that, yes, life starts when, a, when the fetus has a soul immediately after conception and that women can and should be punished uh, for harming uh, a fetus at any point after conception. That's all material that comes from these amicus briefs. And so I guess that's my way of saying that if you want to know what might be coming next, there were briefs that expressly called for Obergefell to be overturned, uh, the marriage equality case. There were briefs that expressly contemplate a national abortion ban. So the briefs are a really, in addition to the justices mining them, as I said, for some of the material they use in their final opinion, what's a little bit chilling is they also kind of send up a flare about where groups want to go next. Well, uh, you know, I, uh, I saw in the Washington Post today that there was a protest at the White House uh, yesterday. And I think uh, of all the signs that uh, people are holding up, my favorite was uh, keep your rosaries off my ovaries. Uh, but uh, let me also ask you, um, you know, I. I have this feeling as somebody that's involved in politics, and I don't know that this had any influence, but give me your opinion since you're so uh, well-versed on this stuff. Did they, the Supreme Court release this right now to get Donald Trump off the front page? It seems to me that every day because of the January 6th, uh, you know, hearings in Congress that Donald Trump was on the front page every day until this came up and it knocked him off the front page. And it, and it would, uh, because it, the, the January 6th things were so important, the hearings were so important, it would take something, I thought, as big as an issue like this to do that. What do you think? You think the court was influenced to, to do this, to, 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 uh, get him off the front page to put out in front of America uh, another issue? I mean, I think that the court always ends its term uh, on the very, very, you know, last few days of June. And so this decision was going to come out. I mean, we, I guess we should start by stipulating this actually was leaked. We saw the bulk of the leaked draft that was leaked to Politico in the first week of May, uh, which we all read, didn't change very
very much uh, from the final draft uh, that came down in the sort of second to last week of the term. So I think that the the probably the answer is, look, the court's term was going to end, you know, in the last week of June, and this was going to come out one of those days. Um, I do think that there's some merit to the argument that um, uh, both the guns decision in the New York guns case uh, that came down and Dobbs, you know, they came down back to back. Uh, and I do think that they were both dropped, you know, on a Thursday and a Friday in the hope that this would not be, you know, at the top of the news cycle, that it would be kind of the weekend and everybody would take the weekend off and forget by Monday. So I think there was probably a little bit of fiddling in the margins to try to crush Dobbs as a big news story. Um, as you know, it didn't happen and there were protests all around the country. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's the, the court really, in some sense, had an alternative. They essentially couldn't go on their summer vacations until Dobbs came down. There was pressure actually in the other uh, direction after the leak uh, was released in May. There was an immense amount of pressure, particularly from some conservative interest groups that wanted to see Dobbs released immediately, the week after the leak in May, on the theory that, um, you know, we already know what's in the opinion. There's no reason to wait. Why wait for the dissenters to write their, you know, dissent? Let's just get it into law and stop abortions right now. The court didn't do that, didn't release Dobbs without dissents or concurrences. But I think that the, the kind of really the essential answer is that this is unlike any other case in that in that we already knew by May what was coming at the end of June. Well, another question, given that you brought you know, you mentioned the, the leak. My colleague, uh, Marilia, also asked uh, that she she understands that justices had to turn over their phones uh, for the investigation into the leak. Do you know how that's going, how the investigation is going, and who is conducting it? So know? that's another great question, because the truth is we know very little. The court could have availed itself of other investigatory branches, you know, could have brought in the FBI. Uh, we should say this is the biggest leak in the history of the court. We've never, ever, ever seen, you know, a stamped draft of an entire opinion leaked to the public. And that leak was followed, as folks know, by, you know, leaked comments from the justices, uh, you know, co- confirmation from John Roberts that the leaked draft was genuine. So all of that stuff was unprecedented. I've been covering the court for 22 years. There's never been anything like this. And instead of turning it over to a meaningful investigation, they turned it over to their in-house marshals. And, you know, with all due respect uh, to the marshal's office, they're very good at keeping order on the plaza. They're very good at making sure that when you go in to watch an oral argument back in the days when you could do that, you know, you weren't carrying a book or a newspaper. What they are not is uh, a criminal investigation operation. And so almost all of this has been completely opaque. We don't know anything about how the investigation is being conducted. We know virtually nothing. Uh, we, there was a, a report to Joan Biskupic at CNN that the clerks, 
were being asked to turn over the phones, not the justices, and that some of the clerks were actually lawyering up that they did not want to turn their phones over. But the real honest answer is that if the court wanted to have an unserious kind of unprofessional investigation, they, they, they could not have done better then turn it over to the marshal service within the courts, who are very, very good at being marshals and really not good at investigating a leak. And the truth is that was May, and now we are in July, and we know nothing. If there's still an investigation going on, we don't know the kind of contours of it, the shape of it. We don't know who's being questioned or, or about what. But what we do know is that it has been entirely done in-house, and that we know nothing has been reported other than that clerks were being asked to turn over their phones. And if, if let's say, for example, uh, an investigation found that uh, 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 Clarence Thomas's wife, Jenny, was the leaker, uh, would that be grounds for impeaching him? Again, I don't think so. Uh, generally, uh, the rule has been, and we know, I guess I should just say, but we know that Ginny Thomas, uh, Virginia Lamp Thomas, his wife, uh, was in communication with Mark Meadows uh, before mm-hmm. the January 6th uh, insurgency. We know she was communicating with state officials, state election officials, uh, asking them to overturn uh, their state. Uh, electors, uh, list of electors. We know that she was at the rally on January 6th, uh, that she got cold and went home. So in some sense, she, you know, is already on the hook for so very much. There was at least um, some muttering that the January 6th uh, 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 committee was going to look at her. I don't think that is really happening. She had initially said she wanted to cooperate them, and then immediately her lawyer said she's not cooperating. And I say all this not to kind of pile on to Ginny Thomas and, you know, putting notwithstanding whether or not she had anything to do with the leak. I say it because Clarence Thomas this year sat on and adjudicated a case about turning over documents to the January 6th committee. He was the only dissenter. He did not at any point disclose that his wife had a vested interest in the outcome of that case. We found that out after. He didn't recuse himself when he has been asked how it's possible that his wife was a party interested in the outcome of that case. He has no compunction about saying, you know, we have separate lives. She does her thing. I do mine. And there's no, and it's sexist to even question uh, whether she answers to me. And I raise all this not just to say nothing is going to happen if it turns out that Ginny Thomas was the leaker, or that even I think if Clarence Thomas is found to be the leaker, I don't think there's a, a way, again, to impeachment, high bar, high crimes and misdemeanor. But I think that Clarence Thomas is already participating in cases that he should absolutely have no business sitting on because his wife is a party in those cases in some way and nothing can be done about it because there are no enforceable rules against the justices. Well, given that this has been turned over to the states now, can we expect to see more cases brought 
before the court uh, challenging this ruling on a different basis, maybe on the 14th Amendment, as one of my heroes, and I know she was one of your heroes too, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg suggested. It, are we going to see more cases like this, or do you think the court would just fail to issue a writ of certiorari, which is required for them to hear a court, court case? I mean, I think we are already seeing in states that have uh, so-called trigger laws, and those are the states that essentially have a rule on the books that say the day Dobbs is overturned, we snap back to our pre-row uh, 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 legal status. So there's a whole bunch of states right now where abortion has become, you know, uh, uh, unlawful, and you are seeing litigation in Texas, you are seeing litigation in Louisiana. We are seeing litigation around the country uh, by abortion rights groups that are trying to press a whole bunch of different arguments challenging the trigger bans, challenging, uh, you know, new criminal laws. There's really interesting questions that we're going to see for years to come in the courts um, about, as I suggested up top, uh, whether a state can actually make it unlawful for a woman to drive across the border to New Mexico to terminate a pregnancy if she's a Texas resident. Like these, those kinds of questions implicate the right to travel. Those are the kinds of questions we haven't really thought about constitutionally since like the Fugitive Slave Act. So there are a yeah. whole raft of questions, as I suggested, you know, the mails and whether you can mail uh, abortion medication to from New York to uh, a person in Mississippi, all of those things are going to be challenged by reproductive justice groups. So I think, you know, yes, when, when Brett Kavanaugh in his concurrence in Dobbs said, phew, now that it's gone back to the state, Everyone can sleep easier. All of the anxiety is alleviated, and everyone can just chill. Um, is one of the most fatuous like claims ever made by a justice because nobody's going to chill, and we are going to see this stuff litigated, you know, around the country in courthouse by courthouse for years to come. I will say that there are really, really interesting. Um, moves being made in states like Connecticut and California that are attempting to, for instance, shield their own abortion providers so they can't be hailed into court, uh, you know, in Florida and they can't uh, have a bounty on them the way Texas's SB8 um, attempts to do. And so we're going to see kind of, again, as I started at the beginning and said there's a patchwork, there's also going to be a patchwork of efforts states that want to bolster uh, reproductive rights and protect their physicians and protect, uh, you know, their citizens. And we're going to see in red states a whole bunch of laws that are going to, as I said, increasingly make it unlawful, not just for providers to provide abortions, but for women who, for instance, order medication abortions. And undergirding all of that, I think you're quite right, there are going to be claims about women's economic interests, right? There are going to be claims about uh, how can you have equal pay for women if, you know, the average woman has six pregnancies in her lifetime and can't terminate any of them. So you're going to see that. And it a little bit goes back to your question you asked me about the amicus briefs. One of the things that showed up really um, 
clarion clear in the amicus briefing on the on the um, side of the case of the abortion providers is that we now can do the data that we couldn't do in 1973 when Roe was decided and we were only starting to do in 1992 when Casey was decided, which upheld Roe v. Wade. Now we have amazing, amazing meta-studies and data showing that women's economic equality, their health, their ability to provide for their children, all of that is lashed to reproductive rights, to the ability to use, uh, you know, to, to terminate a pregnancy and use contraception. So all of that data that was in the briefs in this case, which just is unequivocal about how women's equality in every single way turns on reproductive freedom, that data is not going away. Alito batted it away in his opinion. He couldn't have cared less, but that data is substantial. And I think we will see it being used in exactly the way you just, you know, asked me about. We're going to see claims being made that women cannot possibly be equal citizens if they are forever lashed uh, to their own, um, you know, sort of biological destiny without any options. Let me ask you, the president has, has recently called for Congress to pass a national law um, uh, you know, protecting abortion. Now, can this be done constitutionally, in your opinion, because the decision in Dobbs really doesn't ban abortion, it just turns it over to the states? Uh, if, if, if Congress passes a national law, you think that would stand? I mean, I think that, first of all, let's be clear, there's been... Um a bill called WIPA, the Women's Health Protection Act, that would have codified Roe in the Senate forever and ever because, you know, the Senate would take it up in many ways that the Senate could have the bill. So that law, you know, could have been <laughs> passed. Uh, I think that the fact that the Senate will not even uh, debate it tells you the likelihood of, uh, you know, a codification happening now. I think as long right. as we live in the world of the filibuster and uh, an inability to break the filibuster, even for democracy-enforcing rights, there's like a real question about whether that could even be passed. I think that it is certainly the case uh, that the Congress could pass such a law and that the court could strike it down for exactly the reasons uh, you just said, which is that the court, let's not forget, just, you know, in Shelby County, struck down a chunk of the Voting Rights Act. And uh, in Brnovich last term, struck down and, you know, pulled, eviscerated another section of the Voting Rights Act. So I think we have to be really conscious at this moment that when you have a kind of supine Congress that is not... Um, going back and reauthorizing and codifying things that the court strikes down, it isn't even just a question of, you know, would this be unconstitutional? Would the court turn around and strike down whatever that law is? But this deeper, deeper question of if there's nothing checking the courts because of the structural sort of inefficiencies and ineffectiveness of Congress right now, then that sort of breaking mechanism we about at the beginning, you know, what is the thing that is going to persuade the court to stop 
is not in existence. And, you know, we really, really, I think, have to think very, very hard about solutions beyond just, you know, vote harder, vote, vote more. We have to really think of how we got in a situation where we have, you know, a filibuster, the Electoral College, a malapportioned Senate. I mean, you know this stuff chapter and verse better than I do, that is ultimately democracy suppressing as opposed to democracy reinforcing. And almost want to say, I guess I am saying it, that this is not just pass a law to protect abortion or pass legislation to somewhat claw back the right for, you know, meaningful gun control. This is how did we find ourselves in a system where, you know, five of the six Republicans on the Supreme Court were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote and then, um, you know, ratified by a Senate in which 40 million more people uh, are invisible because of the way the, you know, two-person, uh, two senators work and you, again, know this better than anyone uh, that D.C. doesn't count. Um, And then I think, you know, how is it possible that those six people uh, could look around at, you know, public opinion polls that say 60, 70, 80 percent of Americans wanted Roe to be the law. 60, 70, 80 percent of Americans wanted meaningful gun protection. And in the sweep of 48 hours, the court just shrugged and said, we don't care. That's a systems problem that is really goes way beyond can we pass a law and would the court overturn it. It's how do we think about massive systems reform around gerrymandering, around voting rights, around kind of what feels more and more like creeping minority rule. Well, yeah, I, I got to say I'm amazed and I think most Americans were amazed not only at the opinion of in Dobbs, but also in the gun case with New York, you know, in the wake of uh, such a horrible, horrendous, uh, you know, few weeks where we had a situation where a little girl could only be identified by her tennis shoes, uh, you know, that the court would turn around and make a ruling like that. It it, it just amazes us. Uh, I, it amazes me, and I think it amazes most Americans. But let me ask you, I... I, I I find this very interesting. Under the 14th Amendment, uh, it says that the United States or a member of any state, I'm sorry, a member of Congress or an officer of the United States or a member of any state legislature or an executive or judicial officer of any state that uh, swears, a, a takes an oath to the Constitution to support the Constitution of the United States and shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or giving comfort to the enemies thereof, uh, that that's unconstitutional. Do you think if Congress in the January 6th, um, um, you know, investigation can prove the connection that they're proving, trying to prove between Donald Trump and the insurrectionists. Do you think that could be caused to bar him from running for reelection? I mean, I think there's good reason we've seen this, you know, brought up with respect to Madison Cawthorn, right? We've seen Mm -hmm. already, uh, I think, meaningful efforts to say that people who, um, you know, aided, abetted what felt and looked like an actual insurrection uh, can be uh, disqualified for running from office again. So I don't think 
uh, that's without teeth. And I also think, I mean, you mentioned the January 6th hearings and how much salience that, I mean, people are gripped by it. It is without a doubt those hearings are, I think, educating people and changing minds and we're seeing the polling reflect that. So it seems to me that in a strange way, and this is just a credit to, you know, uh, uh, Representative Raskin and Representative Cheney and all of the folks who have done such a superb job of using the hearings to really educate Americans about the fact that this wasn't, you know, a couple of tourists who got lost on the way to the gift shop. These were yeah. people who were, you know, in concert. They were, it went way high up. We now know, you know, how high it went into the White House. And I think in a really profound way, this is proving to be an education for Americans who are almost going to do the work of precluding Donald Trump for running again. In other words, I think this is actually a system that is working, uh, that something about the televised hearings that are making exactly the claim that you just raised, which is it kind of looks and feels as though Donald Trump was a part of this and that he was working with John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and Jeffrey Clark uh, to quite literally set aside the lawful results of an insurrection, uh, of an election, and to foment violence uh, in the hopes of keeping Mike Pence from certifying the vote. If people keep watching and keep the polling suggests that they really understand that uh, how close we came and how, you know, all these sort of stories we tell, these sort of valorious stories about, oh, the system held, the system held, the system barely held, and there needs to be accountability. And I think in a weird way, the outcome you're asking about is going to come in, hopefully, uh, as a result of these hearings uh, at polling places as much as it comes from the Constitution. Well, and you know, my personal opinion is that this is going to embolden other Republicans to run against them in the primary, uh, other uh, Republicans to stand up. Not that I'm looking forward to the, the candidacy of uh, President uh, DeSantis, but I think it'll allow other Republicans to stand up. Uh, let me ask you, because we're running out of time here. Number one, how do people tune into your podcast amicus which is you know gotten rave reviews how, how do we, how do we find that you go to wherever you find your podcast uh whatever platform you use and you go to uh amicus with dahlia lithwick it's um also up on the slate.com website we put the shows up um every day and we just posted our kind of term in review episode um, yesterday, and so it's A M I C U S Amicus with Dahlia Lithwick. And thank you for folks who uh, tune in because we really, really, really feel, I think, very strongly like the court is kind of the thing to pay attention to. And we really are delighted that all these new listeners uh, are starting to realize that holy cow, holy cow, uh, the court is driving the bus. And as I said, it's headed off a cliff. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm going to give you the last word. Is there anything that you want to say that, you know, I haven't asked you that you think is important to add before we go off the air in about a minute? 
Let me say just this, and I think it's important. The court agreed to hear a case. We didn't talk about it on this show, but folks should be aware that on the very, very last minutes of the term, the court agreed to hear a case that is going to raise questions about whether in future presidential elections, state legislatures can go ahead and throw out the, the slate of electors and put up a fake you know, bunch of electors, which is exactly what the plan was in 2020. The court's going right. to hear that case this fall. And I think that it is the most important case that nobody's talking about. It's a North Carolina case. So I want to just urge your listeners to be really vigilant that the case that would essentially constitutionalize the really, really bad plan that didn't happen uh, on January 6, 2020, is barreling toward us this fall. Well, I hope that you will come back when that case goes go, you know, goes before the court, or you'll come back and talk to us, because I think this has been one of the most informative shows we've had in a long time. And I really want to thank you uh, for coming on. You've been great. Um, folks, this is uh, the end of the show, and we always dedicate a song. So uh, this, we're going to leave you with a song by Janis Joplin. And this goes out to the, to, uh, Justice Thomas and the rest of the Supremes. So you get some idea how women are feeling uh, these days. Here's Down on Me by Janis Joplin. Thank you so much, Dahlia Lithwick, for being with us. Folks, tune in to her uh, award-winning podcast, and I hope you'll come back again sometime. Thank you for having me. It was really the honor was mine. Oh, thanks. See you next week. What down on Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.